If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We've decided we're going to obviously do a Christmas message, but it actually goes right along with our Daniel series. <laughs> Plus it gives us great hope in a crumbling world. We need hope. Don't we need hope? Don't we need to have our eyes focused on the right person, not the wrong person or the wrong circumstance? I trust today this will be such a day. As we go, approach Isaiah, again, we haven't been going through Isaiah, but just let me give you just a couple of snippets to kind of get us the context. The first is the announcement of the birth of the Deliverer or the Redeemer was, was given in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. See, in, in Isaiah's time, which would set it back to about 739 B.C. or even before that, depending on when he actually wrote this, these were dark days for Israel. These were very, very, very dark days for Israel. In fact, chapter 9, verse 1 says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. They were in gloominess. Darkness, despair, fear, anxiety... What was happening was Israel knew that Assyria in the north was going to try to conquer them. Actually, it doesn't, didn't happen for a few more years. But what they had done is they had made an alliance with Syria, Syria being to the north of Israel. And that compact, that tre- a treaty, as it were, was hope, they were hoping to protect themselves against the Assyrians that were even above that. See, there was a pact, and they thought that that would do it. But again, it didn't. They came in anyways, destroyed them. But the point was, is they were in gloominess. They were in fear. It's interesting in verse, uh, just keep reading down through it. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephti, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her. Actually, the idea of uh, heavily oppressed could be taken positively. The uh, could could be that ultimately, as many of your, uh, I'm assuming your... Uh, study Bibles say it could be translated uh, will glorify her. In other words, at first there might be depression, but all of a sudden someone comes on the scene and now it's positive. Now, now positive, something's positive happened. Well, anyways, in Isaiah 7, 14, um, the prophecy says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God is coming. God hasn't forsaken Israel. By the way, God still hasn't forsaken Israel. Israel's still in the plan of God in the end days. But again, these were dark days, and they needed hope. And the first prophecy was, again, Isaiah 7, 14, where the birth of the, uh, the deliverer was, was predicted. And now in chapter 9, just a couple chapters later, the coming of the deliverer and what he was like is, is being told. That's what we're going to look at today. What was the deliverer like, this Messiah? If you go down through in verse 2 of nine, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says, the people who walked in darkness. That tells us why they were in their state. They were walking in darkness. Have seen a great light. That's actually future. By the way, one of the real important things to understand here is many of these verbs are in what they call the prophetic perfect. The prophetic per- perfect, in fact, one guy said this, and I think it's worth reading. It should be noted that the verbs in this section are virtually all prophetic perfects. 
which is highly unusual in one brief passage. As a rule, the prophet normally used only one or two at a time. The verbs are actually stated in the present tense as if they already happened, yet they refer to future events that shall yet come to pass. In essence, the prophet makes his prediction of the future event with such certainty and such finality that he states it in the present tense as if it had already been a fact. Now, that's real important. That is a very, very, very important. Because as you're reading these, you're going to say, well, he's putting it in the present like the person already come. Now, again, this is 600 plus years before the birth of Christ. That's when Isaiah wrote. And, and yet, he's writing it as though it's already happened, like it's a past event. Like it's presently right there happening. When he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. He's... Christ has not yet come. It won't be for 600 plus years. Why? Because God said, I'm going to do it. See, when you come to the promise of God, it's as though it's already done. Do we understand that? When we, when we believe in a promise of God, if you receive Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. See, promises of God are, if I say it, God says, it's going to happen. I will bring it to pass. And so this passage really... Um, encourages us and even demands of us that as God says something, we believe it. And Israel is told, yes, there is darkness now. There is waywardness now, but there's going to be a great light. The shadow of death is going to be taken away and and the light has shined. And by the way, at the first advent, Christ came and partly happened, but then finally at the millennial kingdom, all this will come to pass. Verse 3, You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. You mean just like in harvest time, they're going to be so joyful before the Lord. They weren't at this point. They were walking in darkness. They were walking in disobedience. The day's coming. Verse 4, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. He's referring to Gideon. Just like God showed himself true to Gideon and to Israel. That's how God holds to his word. God conquers the enemy. God protects his people. God will protect you, Israel. I can say this, God will protect you, Christian. So he keeps going. But then in verse 6, just for purposes of time, we now finally get to who this one is. Very familiar passage, verse 6. For unto you a child is born, unto you, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, and then we'll get to that in a moment. This first section of verse 6 is, who is the Messiah? And I, In your outline, if you want to fill that in, who is the Messiah? We have three phrases that, that point to who he really is phrases that really define Jesus Christ 600 plus years ago before he ever was born. The first, excuse me, the first one is this, the Son of Man. For unto us a child is born. This is a statement of his humanity. A statement of his humanity. Born as a human child rather than appearing full grown as a heavenly conqueror. They were expecting the heavenly conqueror. 
They were expecting him coming from the clouds, as it were, and destroying the Assyrians, later destroying the Babylonians, destroying the Philistines. And yet here we find out that he's a child that is born. Luke 2, verse 7 says, Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. That's important because that's what they did with all the babies. But and what he was saying, what they were saying is he was born just like any other baby was born. The virgin conception was what was miraculous. The birth, he was just wrapped in swaddling clothes like every Jewish mother would do to her newborn. Now, laid in a manger, that was different. <laughs> you usually didn't lay your baby in a feed trough. I hope you didn't. <laughs> but this one came from humble beginnings. Very, very, you mean the the Messiah, the conqueror, the, the king, born, the king, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the king, laid in a manger. First John 4 says, God has sent his only son into the world. And there you see both, on both sides, his son has been sent. What do you mean? Well, that's because he's already preexisted. He's eternal, but he sent him into the world. And as Hebrews talks about, we have a great high priest that, that understands the hurts because he was tempted in all things like we were yet without sin. He, he understands, he feels, he hurts like we hurt. He weeps like we weep yet without sin. We have a high priest. We, we have a, uh, this Messiah as one who feels our infirmities. Do you believe that, by the way? I hope you understand that that's true and even feel it, that that's true. <laughs> you know, because sometimes when we are in temptation and trials and hurts, we don't go to Jesus. Well, he's perfect. He doesn't understand. No, no, no. In fact, he was tempted in all things to such a degree. See, we would break. If, if certain temptations were given you to a degree that was, you would break under the temptation, but for the grace of God. But think about this, Jesus Christ being perfect could endure, could endure much more of the temptation and yet he never broke because he was God. But he endured greater temptations than we would ever because we would break way beforehand. You know, set a pecan pie in front of me and, oh, you can't eat it because it's too many calories. Yeah, give me about one hour. Where's the other half? I don't know. We break under temptation. Christ never broke. The Son of Man. Now we also see the Son of God. Unto us a Son is given. By the way, unto us, that was to Israel, but also to us as the world. In the sense of the world, those who are believers. And again, it sounds like a Son is given, like already passed, but it really could be translated, will be given. Because again, it's the prophetic perfect. This is a statement of his pre-existent deity so we got his humanity when this child is born his deity the son is given he existed before his birth not just a child a son he existed before his birth why because he's the second person of the trinity again that, that was again told to us in isaiah seven fourteen, and you shall call his name what emmanuel what god with us well god had no beginning so he will be a son, a son of the house of Israel, a son of David, a son of God. Again, God is, is not done with the nation of Israel. You can 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The second person of the Trinity, you know, again, one essence, three persons came to this earth as the eternal one. But he was born, but yet he is Son. And that's why Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, exact representation, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He, he was... Uh, in the form of God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he came. And then finally, the third phrase that points him out, not only the Son of Man and the Son of God, but also the King of Kings. The government will rest upon, or excuse me, the government will be upon his shoulders or literally rest upon his shoulders. This points to the fact that he's not only the son of man, the son of God, but now we see he's the son of David. He's going to take David's throne. Why? Because God promised to David back in 2 Samuel seven fourteen, when David was still alive, quote, your throne shall be established forever, end quote. And so David's throne was promised. It was promised by God. Your throne, someone will sit on your throne and then it will be forever. And so here is the Messiah. Here is the King of Kings. That the government will rest upon his shoulders. It looks into the future when Christ will be the ruler of this earth. And when I mean ruler, I want you to understand. It literally means this. A literal, earthly, geopolitical kingdom. He will be here. (laughs) See, people say, well, you know, yeah, well, he's a king. I mean, he's, you know, it's a spiritual kingdom. Well, it is true that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have submitted to his lordship and you're part of his kingdom. But we're talking about a physical, literal kingdom. And he will sit on the throne of David. He will rule and reign for a thousand years, Revelation says. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In the literal sense, that has not yet happened. But it's coming. And again, this ties right into Daniel chapter 2. You know, we, remember we, a few weeks ago we were looking at Daniel and, and it says that, you know, the image and the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and we have the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron. And then it says that there's a, um, a rock that smashes the feet and destroys the image. And it says, quote, and it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And the kingdoms there he's referring to are the Gentile kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. It shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. In other words, there's coming a day when the rock hits the the kingdoms of this world, that's Christ, and everything is destroyed, all human kingdoms. There will not be a United States. There will be not a United Kingdom. There won't be a Germany. There won't be an Italy. Everything's destroyed as far as all human kingdoms, and he's the reigning king. In fact, verse 45 of Daniel 2, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces. And you say, what do you mean, without hands? In other words, it didn't have a human origin. This, this stone, this rock that smashed the kingdoms was of divine origin. And he will reign. And his government will be upon his shoulders, and the world will be upon his shoulders. And so we, we get a good picture that he is the, the, the perfect 
son of man, the perfect son of God, but also the son of David reigning. And that's the first part. See, do you see how much hope that Israel is going to have through this? Now, they didn't understand all the pieces. And I'm sure when Isaiah wrote it, he was thinking, oh, when he comes, all those things are going to happen. See, we forget sometimes we see the peaks of prophecy, but we don't see the valleys. And see, Jesus came in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger, conquering king, where's he? And then he tells them, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. Do you see how this is like shaking their faith as, as a disciples? What do you mean? I, I thought you were the reigning king. See, they saw the peak of the first advent. But then there's this church age, and now, but Jesus is coming back. See, everything's on. When God makes a promise, we don't always see it the way that God sees it. He says, listen, I'm, what I've begun in you, I, be confident of the fact that you, I will finish. And sometimes we think, oh, how's he finishing? Well, he's working through you. Just give him, let's have faith in God. By the way, this last week, I was testing this here. I was in what you might call a blue funk. <laughs> Is that an old term? Does that date me? <laughs> Depressed. And you say, why? Why are you depressed? You know, you, I don't know. I don't know if it was, you know, coming off of, the Christmas program was so great. I just felt like it went so well and people, and I thought the gospel was very clear. And all you working together, that's just such a great blessing. I mean, you, you don't know how much that blesses me as just a person here at this church to see everybody working together, like, you know. And one of the things I've realized, in fact, next week we're going to talk about it, is getting connected. I think sometimes we get disconnected. We don't realize that, you know, it's the body of Christ that needs to function well together. It's not just about a few elders or a few deacons or a few teachers or leaders. It's us working together, functioning well together. In fact, I think that's going to be our theme this next year is getting connected for the glory of God, whether it's the word of God, getting connected in prayer, or getting connected with one another. Sometimes we forget that one. You know, I, I remember a placard that once said, a person walking around, and he thought it was right. It said not. It said... Jesus, yes. Church, no. And I think to myself, you know what? If you don't get connected to a local church, you will never grow like you ought. So, you, but so you, so you say, well, why? You know, why would you be depressed? And, and I think, well, maybe it's maybe it's because you know, at times, relationships that I've built don't turn out the way that they ought, or even my own personal sin. By the way, did you know I'm a sinner? Mother, I hope you pray for me as a sinner. You know, Lord, keep him sensitive to his weaknesses, and I'll pray for the same thing for you. There was a combination of things. All I know is like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, especially Thursday, Friday, I was like, oh, man. It was just, I felt like I was in this deep, deep hole. And, uh, you know, talking to different people, and most people would never probably realize it, but I was just like, I felt like I was crawling through, not the fat valley of the shadow of death. I mean, I don't want to paint that, but just, you know, even the time of year, it's such a high time, but then they say, you know, a lot of people get depressed during Christmas. Now, I didn't fall into that category, but, you know, just feeling the hurts of people at times, and the Lord's been working on me. I think sometimes the Lord works on me, so just purely so I can be a better shepherd. Um, then I, and this passage was determined a number of weeks ago that I was going to do Isaiah because it fit so good with that. Daniel 2. It fit so well with just even where we are. Maybe it was even just the political thing. And again, I don't watch a lot of stuff anymore. I'm really weaning myself. But, you know, it just depresses you. And then, you know, the Connecticut shooting. And, man, don't you see evil all around? 
And then as I was studying through Isaiah, it's like, you know what? This isn't just good for the church. This is really good for me and my heart. This, who Jesus is. Yes, he is the reigning king. But now let's, let's find out what the Messiah is like. Okay, what is he like? Because we have leaders, you know, a lot of our leaders that we see, and I don't mean in the church, I'm just saying generally in public, political, they're selfish, they're ungodly, they're arrogant, they're power hungry. You know, even in Judah's day, in fact, one guy said this about Judah's kings, they were incompetent. And I thought, yeah, I can relate to that. <clears throat> but they were uncaring, they were harsh, they were self-focused, they were meism, all that stuff. So now Isaiah says, but listen, I've just told you who he was, but now I'm going to tell you what he's like, okay? I'm going to tell you what he's like. And the first one is, again, his name shall be called, or will be called, by the way, notice will, see, not like, okay, coming forward, will be called Wonderful Counselor. By the way, that's one, right? Some, some have a comma there, Wonderful, comma, Counselor. It's really Wonderful Counselor. But his name, in, 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 the, in the Old Testament, a name pointed towards a person's character. You know, we name people because, yeah, I knew a person like that, and I want to name them whatever, you know. Well, no, to, the, to a Jewish person, when the name was given, it was representation of who that person would be like, what would he be like. So this is the characteristics of Jesus Christ. The first one, he is the source of wisdom. Wisdom. The wonderful counselor. To sit upon the throne of David as a messianic king requires wisdom such as no mere man possesses. Primarily, that's what Isaiah is talking about. Here's the coming king, but what is the king going to be like? He's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to have perfect wisdom. He's going to have perfect wisdom that is, that is combined with perfect character. He's going to be righteous. He's going to be perfect in the sense of uh, holy. And, and you'll see that in a moment. But he's the wonderful counselor. He doesn't need other counselors. He, need, he doesn't need an advisory board. This king of, this Messiah that's coming to Israel that also we serve right now, Jesus Christ, doesn't need other counselors. In fact, Romans 11 says this, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? I.e., no one. No, he's the wonderful counselor. Not only is the Messiah wonderful, but he himself, as one man said, is a wonder through and through. See, it's not just he gives good counsel. He himself is wonderful. Now, I want you to catch that. He himself is wonderful. Sometimes I give good counsel. Sometimes, sometimes I don't. But sometimes I give good counsel, but I myself am not wonderful. See, sometimes... I give good counsel, and I myself am sinning. <laughs> I, I mean, sinning present tense. You know, I'm not perfect, again. I, and so sometimes, and people tell me, oh, you know, and they, they give me a, a, a you know, um, commendation. I think, yeah, that's what you see. By the way, I'm not trying to live a double life. I'm just saying none of us are perfect. But thankfully, isn't this great that even though we're not perfect, God still uses us? I, I, that, isn't that, a, isn't that such, so graceful of God? Even though we're not perfect, he still continues to use us. By the way, the lie of Satan that he will try to get you to think is this. Because you're not perfect, you better hold off on serving right now. Right? Because you're not perfect. 
Now, I would say this. If that's the lie that's going through your mind, repent. (laughs) And don't try to serve if you're not in a repentance mode. But you can say this, Lord, I have sinned. I need to go in a new direction. But Lord, I am repenting. I want to move in that direction. And Lord, I know that there's going to be struggles. There's going to be trials and temptations to move back to my old. But I am repenting of this. But I want to be used. Do you see the two things? See, it's one thing to say, Lord, I'm going to be used in my state right now. I'm not going to repent, but I want to be used by you. It's another thing to say, Lord, I want to repent, but I want to be used. And you can be used right now. I mean, it's not like, well, okay, John, uh, he's going to take another mm, six, eight months. Now you'll be used. No, no, be used right. In fact, sometimes even the fact that you've gone through the sins, you know, what is he talking about? All things work together for good. Even through your sins. I, have, I know me. I, I've become a lot more patient with people as I've had to struggle through trials and temptations. Hey, you sit down across from me. You're struggling? I hear you. I understand. I understand where you're at. Now, that doesn't mean I give you a pass because God didn't give me a pass. But, hey, we'll struggle together because I understand that struggle. But now Jesus, he's the wonderful counselor. He doesn't only give perfect counsel. He is the perfect one himself. Okay, so he's the wonderful counselor. He answers all of the questions of life. In fact, Isaiah 11, 2, you may want to go back to this one some other time, but Isaiah 11, 2 really expounds, you know, well, actually, you know what? It's just a chance. Yeah, I hear all these pages. Time, you know, I got to get the time. No, we'll just enjoy the process here. Um, Isaiah eleven two 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit, Christ, on him, Christ. The spirit of wisdom, this is what he has. This is what Christ had. Well, again, second person, the Trinity, literally, literally, Jesus Christ, as he walked this earth, was under complete control of the Holy Spirit at all times, never without complete control. I mean, can you imagine that perfection? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord perfect and that's the wonderful counselor perfect inward perfect outward perfect in what he says perfect in his counsel that's why in john one of the officers in john 7 verse 46 says this no man ever spoke like this man (laughs) Uh, he answers man's greatest questions that's why he's a wonder it's an extra it's exceptional you know, he will answer through his sacrifice on the cross, and we'll get to this in a moment, how can I be forgiven? How can I be made right before God? How can I be saved from eternal doom? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? All those questions through the life of Christ, through the word of God, those, all those questions. Isn't it amazing that Christians have all those questions answered, and yet the world is still searching? Again, we have, to be, we have to understand who we're dealing with. God has given us insight as believers in Jesus Christ. So the Redeemer will come with absolute wisdom. He is in every respect the highest and most perfect teacher. And he himself is, not only gives the answer, but is the answer to life. But then, if, you go, if you're in Isaiah 11, it talks about that he has the spirit of might and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of... Well, 
when he left, what did he say? He says, you know what, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you a helper. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to be your comforter. He's going to be your paraclete. He's going to be the guy, the, the, the one, let's say, the person who comes alongside of you. So he not only gives us counsel, but he gives us the victory in it. See, there's one, again, I think of myself and I'm sitting across the desk from someone and they need help and I'm helping them and I'm counseling, but then <coughs> it's between them and God because it, it is God that gives the strength to be able to change. Not me. I might give the right, right counsel, but it is God that gives the ability to change because he wants the glory and he's the only one that can do it fact let's just john 14 i I don't want i want to make sure we we nail this one john 14 verse 15 sometimes we try to change people and we try to change in our own strength notice the connections of the of what he's getting at we'll just read 14 through or excuse me uh 15 through uh 17 if you love me keep my commandments now you say, well, how does that relate? Well, he's saying, if you love me, you'll, you'll do what I say. Unfortunately, it's impossible for you to do that unless I'm empowering you. And that's the point of verse 16. And I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may abide with you for 25 days. Forever. Who is this? The spirit of truth versus error whom the world cannot receive, it's only for you who are believers, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The temptations you face late at night, the temptations you face when you're by yourself, the temptations you face when you're in a crowd, you can take them to him and he can empower you. Why? Because he is in you. And so he's the wonderful counselor who gives counsel, who then executes the counsel he is given through his spirit. Source of wisdom. Number two, he is also the source of victory. And again, these play on each other. It talks about, when I say victory, again, he's the one that is the strong one here. It's the strongest title of, de- of a deity warrior that you can have. This, it's literally El Gabor. Mighty means strong and mighty, brave. But then there's that word El, God. See, some have tried to say, and they're basically liberal commentators, that what he's really getting at is this is God's hero. Human, God's hero. But no, he's really saying this. And this one that's coming, this Messiah, this one who's the rescuer of Israel is the hero God. He's not just human, he's the God-man. El Gabor. In fact, this phrase is always used of God in Isaiah's right. Always. Very consistent. He's the powerful warrior. He's the one that defends Israel. He's the God with us. His great power. He just saw that in Isaiah 11 too. His mighty strength will rest upon, um, has rest upon him. And that's why he's able to tell his disciples. And by the way, there's, in each one of these, there's an application to Israel and there's an application for us. We've got to see both. He's writing to Israel, but, but there's a clear application for us. That's why he told his disciples, John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Sometimes we forget that. We've lived in a pretty easy culture. 
But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why? Because I'm the Al Gabor. I'm the overcomer here. And by the way, he has overcome sin and death and the devil. He is breaking sins in your lives, isn't he? But he's also, you know, as Jesus Christ went to the uh, cross as, well, again, as he walked this earth, he perfect obedience to the Father. He went as the perfect sacrifice to the cross. And on the cross, all the wrath and all the fury of all your sins that should have been placed on you was placed on him. And he's the conqueror. And as we receive him, we receive his forgiveness and his righteousness. Enemies too powerful and too strong, such as the devil and death and sin, by whom we would be vanquished immediately if Christ's strength had not been made invincible in us. That's the, see, he's the conqueror. He's the conqueror in our life. By the way, he actually conquered us. <laughs> see, he's not only going to destroy Assyria and Babylon and Greece, and he's, over the years, he is, but then ultimately he's going to destroy the Antichrist armies. He is the great conqueror even in our life. There was a day when you were against God. It says you were in enmity with him. What did he do? He came and pursued you. He broke you. Aren't you glad you... That's one time I'm glad I was broken. I'm glad I was broken by Christ. That he showed me my sin. He showed me that I would be damned. He showed me that I was against God. And I, and I looked up. Why? Because he put his spirit within me to understand truth and I received Christ. But now he keeps breaking me. And you know what? I love it. I don't like the... But you know what? When I, when I started looking at why I was depressed, I started seeing some things. Pride. I preached on that last week, seven days ago today. Right? Nebuchadnezzar's pride. See, but God says, you know what? I got some work to you and you. <laughs> See, come, with pride comes comparison, comparing and envy. There was jealousy in my heart. There was anxiety because of fear of man. See, there was some things there that I didn't see, and he broke me. By the way, don't always feel bad about depression. Sometimes it's a good warning sign. You know, if the bridge is out, you really want to have a sign up there that says, blah, 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 do not progress any farther than here. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sometimes we, you know, we say, oh, man, I can't believe it. I'm depressed. Well, maybe, maybe there's things going on in your heart. I'm not saying every time you're depressed, that's it. But so, many times it is. Some things are going on in your heart you need to deal with. Hebrews 2.14, he himself, he himself did this, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He's the great Gabor. He conquered the devil. And released those who through fear of death, see, he released us from the fear of death. That Colossians says this, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public display of them, triumphing over them. The idea there was the Roman triumph. What do you mean the Roman triumph? Well, in Roman days, when they conquered a nation, they would have a parade called the triumph. And the general and all the fighting men that was on the winning side of the Roman army would walk down, but along them, behind and sometimes in front, depending on the scenario that I, because I've read it both ways, but the point was the captives were there and the plunder and the booty was there and everything else that had to do with the, um, the, the, uh, the war and the victory. 
In fact, they'd even do, you know, they didn't have CNN, they didn't have movie cameras. They'd actually do um, like big portrayals of some of the battles. There's mighty Titus coming over, destroying, you know, and they would have literally pictures drawn out of, you know, the battlefield. That was the triumph. Colossians says that's what Christ did to the enemy. Triumph, as it were, just like a, like a parade. Before all the world, I am the victor. Oh, there's a mop-up job to do right now. Satan is still loose, but you know what? It is as sure as he, that he is on the throne, that he is the one, that he is God, that they, they will all be defeated. And sin right now has been defeated, and yet we still have the old unredeemed flesh, and we, we fight against that. But the point is, is the victory is his. By the way, the victory is ours. It's by faith. It's not only that we can be forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ, that's justification, that we can be declared righteous, but also we can have daily victory. That's sanctification through the, vic- through the victory of the cross. We can, be, we can be continually broken, continually victorious in Christ. I like this illustration that Charles Haddon Spurgeon many times gave. He told of a man who had been sentenced to death by the Spanish court. Because he was an American citizen and also of English birth, and I'll catch this, he's an American citizen and also of English birth, the consuls of both countries decided to intervene. They declared that the authorities of Spain had no right to take this man's life, but their protest went unheeded. Spain didn't listen. Finally, they deliberately wrapped the prisoner that was supposed to be executed in the flags of both the Stars and Stripes and the Union Jack of England. They said this, defying the executioner, they issued this warning, quote, fire if you dare, but if you do, you will bring the powers of two great nations upon you. And they forewent the the condemnation of that particular prisoner. I love that story. (laughs) I get emotional because you know what? When you are in Christ, you are wrapped by the blood of Christ. And nothing can, and I'm sure Satan would love to destroy you and have you lose your salvation. And every, but you know what? He is the El Gabor. He is the mighty God. He protects his people. He protects Israel. He will protect Israel in the future. And he protects us right now. He protects his, his believers right now. We are wrapped in the blood of Christ. Which means this. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. What are you struggling with? Go to him. He has the answers. He has the strength. He will protect. Number three, he is the source of comfort. Oh, I actually think these go in sequence in some respects. He's the source of comfort. He's the everlasting father, or literally the father of eternity. And immediately you're going to say, wait a second, I thought you were talking about the son. Well, first of all, let's just take these words. Eternal, everlasting. Obviously, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, obviously, that is God. God is eternal. God is eternal. Hebrews says he made the worlds. Micah says, 5-2 of Jesus, the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We know that God the Father is eternal. We know that Jesus Christ is eternal. We know that the Spirit is eternal. So, so then you say, well, wait a second, everlasting father. Sounds like the father here. Think of the father. Think of the term father, not in relationship to the Trinity, but more like in relationship to time and his people. 
Because he's pointing to the same person in Isaiah. See, it's not like he's shifting gears here. A child is born, a son is given, the government, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. It's not like you can switch gears. Then you say, well, how is Jesus like the Everlasting Father? I mean, not like. Why is his name Everlasting Father? Again, eternal. But what is a father? What is a father? In one sense, he is, quote, one who is eternally a father, eternally fatherly. He acts towards us like a father. In fact, Psalms 103 says this, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. The quality of fatherhood is defined by the word eternity. The Messiah is an eternal father. Quote, he is one who is eternally a father to his people. Now and forever, he guards his people and he supplies their needs. End quote. That, that's what he's getting at. When Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. That's what he's saying. I'm the father here. I'm the one that takes care of you. I'm the one that supplies your needs. I'm the one that protects you. He's our protector. I mean, all right, I know some of us had really pathetic fathers. And there's no earthly father that's a good illustration of, of God. I mean, God is perfect and none of us are. But I know for me, having children put a whole new realm in my life because actually a lot of my anxieties that I experience have nothing to do with me. <laughs> it has to do with them. Right? Because when I see tumult in the world or sins in my own life or sometimes even the things that I have to deal with in my inner life, and then I think, well, how will that affect my, parent, uh, my, my kids? Because I love my kids. By the way, I love my wife but her and I, we're getting older, things, you know, and we're just like, well, you know, life is going on, and, and I know that she's walking with God, and I know that I am, and I know we're both secure in his love. We, but now it's our children, next generation, and there's a concern, and I want to see them provided for. I want to see them protected. I don't want things bad to happen to them. <coughs> In fact, that's, part of the, that's the hard part for me as a parent right now. They're getting older, 18, 19, 20, 21. Kids, understand this. This is real hard for the parent as well. It's not like you're the only one suffering here. We're suffering. Isn't that true? You know, you poured your life into them, now, and, and now you're letting them fly, and sometimes they fly home. No, no, you need to fly. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just think of it that way. <laughs> He treats us with gentleness and tenderness and love and comfort and understanding. That's, that's the good shepherd. Hebrews 4 says this, we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest, really a great high priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, they put it, he, the text puts it in a negative, but the idea is this, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. What, what do you mean? I mean, he has compassion towards us. He's affected when we're affected in our struggles. And that's why that second part of Hebrews 4, verse 16, just a verse later, it says this, let us therefore go boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. In other words, what is mercy? Not giving us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. But we can go boldly before the throne of grace. By the way, what's the grace? Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. So don't give us what we do deserve. 
condemnation, judgment, but give us what we don't deserve. (laughs) So let me read that one more time. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He just got done saying, though, a couple verses before, we have a great high priest. He can sympathize with you. That's why you go boldly, because we don't have a monarch who is selfish and vindictive. He is merciful and compassionate and gracious, and we struggle. He understands that. We don't take that lightly. That should hit us to the quick. But Lord, you understand, and I come running to you. I come running to your throne because I understand who you are. And so he's a source of comfort. See, if he wasn't gracious and merciful, why, that wouldn't be comfortable. Comforter. You know, maybe you even grew up with a father who, you know, he, he pointed out, you know, get historical and remember, I remember when. Yeah, that's not the Lord. That's not the Lord. The Lord pities his children. The Lord is grace towards his kids. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And then finally, he's the prince of peace. Does this world need peace? <laughs> How many wars are, wars are going on? I think somebody said like 50 or 60 right now in all different areas, you know. He is the source of peace. He's the prince of peace. Wars and rumors of wars have characterized this earth forever. But the Messiah will be the maker of peace. And by the way, in the millennial kingdom, there will be peace on this earth. In fact, you could break this idea of prince of peace up into three areas. First of all, he establishes peace on earth. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over the kingdom, to order it and establish it and with judgment and justice. That's very important. He does it righteously and holy. From that time forward, even forevermore. Now catch that last little part. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The idea is this. There will be peace on earth. earth, There will be peace through the Messiah. And it's because the zeal of the Lord. It's because God did it, not because man did it. God is going to accomplish through his sovereignty and through his promise, peace on this earth. That's why over in uh, Isaiah 11, we've been there. You don't have to turn. No pages. But it says this, the wolf shall lay down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion fattling together. And he has all these combinations where, you know, the, the boy would never get close to the adder's den, but there there will be peace, even among animals, and even at the crossover from animals to humans, there won't be the, um, there'll be peace. There'll be peace on this earth. But, let's, let's, but how do you get peace on this earth? By the way, there will be a rebellion at the very end. I say that because this, you can only have peace when there's peace in the heart. And so the second part of this idea of the Prince of Peace is that he offers peace with God. This is the spiritual aspect. I just told you the earthly aspect. See, he brings peace to our lives between us and God the Father. God must be at peace with man. Romans 5, 1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's no longer a war going on between us and God because of the peace that Jesus Christ produced with his death on the cross. In fact, that Romans 5, 1 says this, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace... And, and remember, the peace there that he's referring to is not us being upset with God. It's that God is upset with us. Okay? God is at war with us. God wants judgment against us because of our sin. We are sinners. 
We are condemned. We need to be under his judgment. And God wants to destroy us. This is before salvation. But now Christ went to the cross and all of our sins and the judgment and the wrath was placed on him. And when we receive him, now we stand in Christ's righteousness forgiven. And the war between God towards us is done. We're at peace. We are at peace. In fact, there's a neat little story that Ironside, Harold, Harry, Iron, Iron, Harry Ironside used to tell. At the close of the Civil War, a troop of the Federal Cavalry were riding along a road between Richmond, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. So you get the picture, there, cavalry running around, and suddenly they saw a poor wretch of a soldier clothed in ragged remnants of a Confederate uniform coming out of the bush. He called to the captain of the cavalry unit who drew in and waited for him. Can you help me, the soldier called out. I am starving to death. Can you give me some food? Starving to death, questioned the captain. Why don't you just go into Richmond and get what you need? The soldier explained, I do not dare go to Richmond because if I did, I would be arrested. Three weeks ago, I became so discouraged because of our losses that I had deserted from the southern army. And I have been hiding in the woods ever since, gradually making my way north, hoping for a chance to break through the federal lines. If I should be caught by a southern soldier, I would be shot for deserting the army in time of war. The captain asked, haven't you heard the news? What news? Well, the war is over. Peace has been made. General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox two weeks ago. The Confederacy is ended. What said the soldiers? Peace has been made for two weeks, and I've been starving in the woods because I didn't know about it? I love that. Sometimes we forget. Well, maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe you've never received Christ. And the war is still going on, not realizing that that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth. He came to die for you, for your sins, so that he would experience the wrath that was supposed to be for you. And by receiving him, you can be forgiven. You don't have to be at war with God or God at war with you. But also, sometimes we forget, even as, as believers, that the war is done. We fail God. And we forget that, wait a second, no, Christ is everlasting Father. You know, the penalty for my sins, before I got saved, up to when saved, after salvation to the day I die, all those sins placed on the cross. I can have peace with God. Okay, I can have peace between God and I. But not only that, but he gives us the peace of God. This is the third aspect. The peace of God. We can experience, have experiential peace in our life. In fact, Philippians says this, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. You may say this, I have the peace with God, I've been justified, I've been forgiven, but I don't have the peace of God. I struggle with the peace, and that's, that's sanctification. That's, how do you get it? I would say just two simple things. One is this. This is a peace that is based upon one's intimate knowledge of God, a God who is in control of all things. I think one of the greatest things that I've had to learn is this. God is really in control. <laughs> you, if you don't get that down, peace will not come. The second part is this, and because God is in control of all things, this peace is not based on circumstance. It is not based on circumstance. It is based on spiritual realities. See, this peace is, my God is in control. He's the mighty God. 
my Lord, he's in control. But he's the great, he's the wonderful counselor. He's the everlasting father. He's the great comfort. He's the one that gives me strength. But it is God who is in control. He's sovereign. But point two is, and, and I can't try to find my peace based on circumstance. I can't be, find it based on the political system, the world situation, my relationships, or my financial stability. I can't find peace there. If I do, those are all circumstances that can change. I've got to find it in the spiritual realities that as I put my faith in Christ, he is in me. He is my master. He has got my eternity set. I'm secure in him, right? We sometimes say we want the peace of God, but then run after the world. No, no. This peace is literally because of what, because of my saving relationship with God. Think of Christ as I close. Circumstances raged around Jesus. He was totally unruffled by them. Totally. His enemies foamed with rage in their passionate desire to kill him. But still he went his way, knowing that his life and times were in the hands of a loving and wise and all-powerful Heavenly Father. That's why Jesus was at such perfect peace, because of spirituality. My Father looks over me. He is sovereign. So when Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, See, the world says you can't have peace and joy unless your circumstances all line up. Your finances have to be correct. Your health has to be correct. Your relationships have to be correct. Everything has to be. Then as you move towards that, you're going to find peace. But Jesus said, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, restless, agitated. That's what the word troubled means. Neither let it be afraid. Why? Because I'm in control. I'm in control. And as your heart and your mind become focused on me, the spiritual reality of all that I've done for you, that's where peace comes from. And, and your whole life can be even like Christ, where enemies abound and circumstances are negative. But because we have the Savior, he is enough. He is totally enough because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father.